overtime's a pain. I, I'm not able to record it in, in beforehand, so we're recording it now. Um, alrighty. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Isaiah chapter 12. Eventually, it'll be behind me on the screen. I trust in Betsy's wisdom. Um, anyway, so what we went over last week with uh, Isaiah chapter 11, um, it was this reminder that God is going to be victorious in the end and that from the root of Jesse would come a loud noise. Just kidding. Would come, one, would come one who was going to overcome all of the nation's enemies and that through this root of Jesse, through this individual, this seed in the stump, would come salvation for the people. Um, and so now we're going to be coming to Isaiah chapter 12. And in a way, Isaiah chapter 12 ends everything that happened since Isaiah 6. So this whole long time of wondering, okay, nations, are we going to trust in these foreign nations to save us? Or are we going to trust in God? And Isaiah has been putting this balance between the people. If you do this, it's going to lead to judgment. If you don't do it, it's going to lead to blessing. Um, and so now we come, okay, to a place where the people really do believe. What happens if the people actually, the remnant would believe? And we find, okay, this is the result. And it's a beautiful result. And it's actually in the form of a hymn. Um, and you can see that with the way that uh, Isaiah writes this. It's actually meant to be sung. I'm not going to sing it. Um, I'll just read it. So Isaiah 12, verse 1. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. So the chapter begins with an interesting singular masculine, you, um, will say in that day. Immediately we are given a warning. So far, when the phrase, in that day, has occurred, it precedes calls of judgment against the people for their injustice, for their immorality, for their faithlessness against God. But what do we find instead now? We find what Isaiah has been proclaiming all along. While it is true judgment will come against the people, there is also hope. This response then actualizes the hope which Isaiah had proclaimed concerning the coming king and the remnant. Thus, this was the remnant who speaks. But what do we notice? The person will recognize their own guilt. This reflects back onto Isaiah when he encountered God on the throne in Isaiah 6. His first response was one of fear because he was a man of unclean lips among people of unclean lips. God has every right to be angry with people over their sin manifesting in pride, arrogance, immorality, and injustice. Still, the individual recognizes that God was angry, but that his anger has been turned away. This is significant, since there must be something which alleviates God's anger against the people. For God is again right to be angry with people for all of their sinfulness. Yet we find here that God is no longer angry and indeed he comforts those whom he was once angry with. Again, a significant statement to be made in light of the judgment made previously. It is for this reason the individual is able to give thanks. Whatever guilt they had is now taken away. What could possibly take away the guilt? 
It is seen in the statement that God is my salvation. Throughout the preceding chapters, Isaiah has at times proclaimed that the people should turn toward God for their safety and assurance. Now the individual recognizes the reason for this call, just as Isaiah had. It is God alone who can provide salvation. He alone who can provide safety and assurance. Instead of turning toward other means, whether kings or earthen powers, riches, whatever it is that they are turning toward, the individual instead will trust in God and not be afraid. Indeed, what is there to be afraid of when it comes to pagan nations? God is the God of all. And if he holds the individual in his hand, then there is true safety. Those who trust in the Lord will find true strength, which leads to this song. The Lord God is mighty. In giving oneself to God, an individual is able to find the strength which they lack on their own and which other nations lack as well. Thus, the conclusion of the first two, two standards, so to speak, is that God is truly uh, the one who is this individual salvation. Now we come to verse 3. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be known in all the earth. Now, the text makes an interesting minor turn that if you don't know the original language, you'll miss. Previously, we saw how the you was a singular masculine, so it would be like Mike saying it. Now the you is plural. Thus, we read verses 3 through 5, it says, y'all, you know, the southern y'all, you all. With joy, you all will draw water from the wells of salvation. In this sense, we see how the salvation motif switches from an individual perspective to a corporate one. This makes sense since salvation is both individual and corporate. Salvation does not come about in a bubble, but bridges gaps between individuals to form a community. As such, the fact that they will draw water from the wells is interesting in light of the often dryness of Israel and Judah. It may also be a reflection upon the Exodus, where God would provide water for his people while in the desert. When we consider God's provision, it makes sense to equate salvation with wells and with water. Just as sin often leads to barrenness, so God, he provides life. Just as individual salvation led to worship, so too does corporate worship. We see how in that day the people will give thanks to the Lord. To give thanks is a means of praise for the people over what God has accomplished. We see this to be the case. They call upon his name. By calling upon his name, it can reflect a few different things. It could be that they literally call out his name or that they worship him in his attributes and his character. In either way, we can understand it to mean that the people personally know the Lord and are known by the Lord. This is made evidence in that they know his deeds and in knowing his deeds desire to proclaim them and exalt his name. This is a stark contrast to the people we have seen thus far in Isaiah. So far, they had been seeking self and seeking to get advantage over others. Now they recognize their need for God and in needing him rejoice in who he is rather than turning a blind eye toward him or scorning him as they had been. Still, this proclamation of what God has accomplished leads to the whole world praising God's name. When not only the individual, but the corporate people proclaim the goodness of God, it is made manifest among them 
and it's also made manifest in the earth. As such, the whole world is told of the work of, the, of God by the people who have been saved by him. Now we come to the final verse of the chapter. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great is in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This final verse of the hymn closes with a return to the singular. Um, what some scholars notice, however, is that the singular is no longer masculine, it's actually feminine. In this sense, the whole of the people has been emphasized as praising God for his salvation. That it is an inhabitant of Zion reflects on the fact that it is from Israel, Judah, where salvation does stem from, it comes from. Whereas previously the people were looking toward uh, other nations outside of themselves for their salvation, now others would look toward them as the song of salvation which comes from God. We see this in the final phrase, God is in their midst. The Holy One of Israel is another way to describe God. The one who has, uh, was once their enemy because of their sin now becomes their salvation and their blessed hope. That he is called holy reminds us of the unique character as being above all others. He's so different. He is not like the other gods made of wood or stone. No, this is truly unique God of the cosmos who belongs to Israel. But we have seen it is not only the people of Israel that the light comes but to the world who hears of his awesome power and his salvation. Alrighty. The main point of these verses are to close out what has occurred previously. Isaiah had first seen God enthroned, and it led to him fearing God. But God was gracious and brought salvation to Isaiah and cleansed him of his unrighteousness. Now Isaiah sees this happening with other individuals, which leads to a people receiving salvation by God's grace. Those who have been saved by grace spread the joyous news of God's work to the world. And in this way, the knowledge of the Holy One of Israel is given. Thus, it is a fitting end, for it is a hopeful end. Reminding us that though there is judgment, there is hope in salvation. So, worship is a common theme within the scriptures. When we consider the Psalms, as well as songs scattered throughout the Bible... Um, they're seen, it should be no surprise to us to see that it happens here in the midst of Isaiah. Um, but that leaves us with a question. What is our motivation to worship? What is the motivation for worship within the scriptures? What causes us to sing songs and to live in a way which honors God? What causes us to join together to worship? I suspect many of us will say our chief motivation is joy. I think that that is a great motivator for worship. It really is. Many of our songs are expressions of the joy we have toward God. Joy is an incredible motivator for us to write songs of praise and sing those songs. But I'm going to say that while joy is a great motivation, there's something even beyond joy. Indeed, in this chapter in Isaiah, we find the motivation for joy expressed in this hymn. We are able to see why the people give thanks and express this gratitude toward God. Now the question is, what is causing them to give thanks? The answer is in the fact that they know God. The knowledge of God is what gives them joy. It is the knowledge of God which provides them a reason for thankfulness. While joy and thankfulness outflow from us, it only happens when we know who God is. If we do not know God, then there would be no joy or thankfulness toward God. But what if, what if we don't know God? What if the God of the universe 
could be known by us, and what if we were known by him? What would happen if, we, if he were to do something, anything in our space-time? In this passage in Isaiah, we are finding the results of the knowledge of God, which causes the people to worship God in joy and thankfulness. We see how it all plays out in the text. We learn how God was once angry with the people. This is an important point. Oftentimes we imagine God as being loving and accepting under all circumstances. We often hear the message, God loves you just the way you are. Well, if that's true, then why is God once mad at these individuals? For what reason, reasons, was God angry with them? While it is true we experience God's love, we must not allow this to lead us to the false understanding of who God is. The truth is, God does get angry. He gets angry over sin and angry at sinners for choosing to sin. He does not like injustice or immorality. He judges people who continue to live in ways which are against his holy precepts. Is it wrong for God to get angry at people for disobedience and unfaithfulness? I do not believe so. Without God, there is no foundation for what is good in the world and in us. If we were to reject God, then anything could be considered good based upon each individual person's. Um, And as such, the person who commits atrocious evils could be considered good because his definition of good is what is truly evil. Without God, none of us could counter arguments because then our goodness is just defined by ourselves. This is exactly what we have seen thus far in Isaiah. The people continue to turn toward other means other than God for their salvation, for their hope, and for their assurances. By doing this, then, they live in lifestyles which are immoral and unjust. Not only do the individuals do this, but the people as a whole fall prey to their sinfulness. As Isaiah said back in chapter 1, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Thus, for our text today, to describe an individual for thanking God for turning away his anger against them is significant. It tells us that these individuals were A, aware of God as he is in his holy character, and then be aware of themselves in their lack of holiness. By knowing God and who he is, they're able to recognize their complete dependence upon God, not to save them from their worldly enemies, but to save them from God himself. Why? Because God is good and they were not. This knowledge of God, and even of self, led the people to worship God in thankfulness. They recognize the grace of God and love of God. They are able to rejoice in God's salvation because they not only know their own sinfulness, but know God's great holiness. It also causes them to learn more about God and his strength. Though they were willing to trust in others by knowing God, they can now trust in him alone. There is no reason to fear anything if God is on their side. If God is capable of bringing salvation from his anger against them, then he is capable of saving them from all other enemies and obstacles. Again, this requires knowing God. But it doesn't end there. It isn't only personal, this salvation. We notice how the text changed from the singular to the plural. How it went from you as a person to you all as the people group. This is the great thing about God's mercy. It falls on us as individuals, but also falls on us corporately. 
Thus far in Isaiah, we have seen the way in which individuals lead to broken societies. The wicked rulers, the oppressors, the unjust, the unrighteous who take advantage of the poor and the marginalized. The lack of godliness on all accounts. We see what kind of society it leads to. A broken one. But what does a society look like which knows God? The answer is found here. It dwells not on itself or on its pride or its own understanding. Instead, it is founded on God himself and the knowledge of who God is and what he has accomplished. Instead of rejoicing in themselves and thinking so highly of themselves, the people who turn toward God will rejoice in the knowledge of him alone. It is not only a knowledge of his great and awesome power and his ability to save. The text describes it as the people calling upon his name. In this way, it reminds us of how personal God is to his people. He is their savior. He is not impersonal, but instead he is their personal savior, whom they all can rejoice in together. No longer are they islands only experiencing their own things and letting that be enough. Now they are together, recognizing the greatness of God, and it causes them to call on his name alone because they know him. Where does it lead for the corporate people? It leads to them not bottling up, but expressing it out to the world. We see how the whole world is filled with the knowledge of God. How can this be? By the people proclaiming God's salvation, not just to themselves, but to the world. As such, we see the people living not just for this God on Sunday, when they are surrounded by the people who agree with them. No, these individuals are living fully for God, and the whole earth is being made aware of the glories of God and all he has accomplished. These individuals are spreading the knowledge of God outside of themselves. Why? Because the knowledge of God is what brings the world the greatest amount of joy and peace. If there was a point to be made in this hymn, it is precisely this. The knowledge of God is the greatest good we could receive from God. For all of the other goods which we receive, it requires us to have a knowledge of him in order for us to even begin to understand. Yes, God's love is great, but it is possible for us to never know God's love because we do not know God. God's grace is great, but without knowing God, do we ever truly experience it? The individuals and corporate people in today's hymn are rejoicing because they know God. And knowing him, they know his anger, but they also know his comfort, his peace, his kindness, his love, and his salvation. This is possible only because of what God had accomplished for them. As the text says, the Lord is my salvation. The God is the one who brings the salvation, shows it is not by our hands, but by God's grace. He comes to us. He makes himself known. And in making himself known, we are blessed. If there could be a critique against us today, it would be this. We do not care enough about knowing God. Very often we can feel it a bore learning about God and his ways. We can read over the scriptures and it become uh, more of a chore than anything else. We can pray, we can meet together, and instead of finding our joy in knowing more about God, we find it bothersome. I suspect the reason for this is our sinful natures. We are incredibly self-seeking and self-serving. We often believe our times of worship are meant for us to find ourselves and to learn more about ourselves. Yet the truth is, our time of worship isn't about appeasing ourselves, but learning about God. And who he is and loving all the wondrous and marvelous deeds he's accomplished in the past. Is currently accomplishing in our present and will accomplish in the future. 
Unfortunately, because we are so selfish, we can forget the most important thing we could attain is knowing this God who created the cosmos. The same God in this hymn in Isaiah is the same God who we can know today. The God we worship today is the same Lord who is described in this text. The same God known by Isaiah can be known by us. It all makes me think of what was written in Philippians 3, where we read, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. By the way, that's a gloss. That's, rubbish is actually a really strong word for something else. <laughs> In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteous from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So, why delay? Let us join together with the ancients to praise the God who has brought salvation to us. This God who makes himself known to us and in being made known gives us all the measures of assurance and peace we could ever ask. Let us see that knowing God is not a burden but a blessing given to us because it is from him all goodness flows. And knowing him we end up learning about ourselves and know too of the transformation which comes from him. What more can we do than join in giving thanks to the God of our salvation, this wonderful God who has made himself known to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And all of this leads to the gospel. I don't know how it doesn't because in the gospel, what do we find? The word became flesh. It's in the person of Jesus Christ that it all comes together so that way we can know God. And that's why it's interesting. It's John who wrote the gospel and he begins with that classic statement, anarche and halagos, in the beginning was the word. Um, but then, you know what else he writes in First John? He writes about how we can know God, how we touch God, how we know that this happened. And so it is that the gospel is seen here in this rejoicing. And it's seen in actually the three ways I've underlined. We're going to talk about the origin, so just because. The gospel begins, it has to begin somewhere, and it begins with God himself. He is the first cause of all the universe. It is through him that everything comes into existence. Without him, there would be nothing. And so God created this whole cosmos, and then he decided to create humanity to bear his image. Which means that every single person here, no matter who they are, every single person that you meet is made in the image of God. And that means that they have dignity, sanctity, and worth to life. And this is a wonderful thing. It's something that we can look at each other and look at ourselves. Because a lot of times we look at ourselves and we think, we're not that great. But think about it. You're made in the image of God. That's a glorious thing. But what happens when that beautiful artistic work is paint is thrown all over it. Or someone comes up to the statue of David, let's say, and starts to chisel away at his nose. It's like, oh. That's what sin does. It distorts. It takes the image of God that we are made in, and then it breaks it. And so instead of being made in his image, or it shows us that, okay, we're just fallen. We're broken. We are nothing. No matter what, we're just sinners. 
And sin does this and it distorts our views of ourselves and it distorts who we are and it makes us want to continue to follow unrighteousness. So we lie to each other, we steal, we cheat, we murder one another. Instead of trying to understand one another in love, we instead fight. We're in a, instead of taking care of the poor among us, we decide to throw them under the bus so that we, we can get more. These are all examples of unrighteousness, sinfulness. And we see it today because God was angry with the people. And he has every right to be angry with us. Adam and Eve sin one time. We sin every day. We don't even acknowledge God most of the time. We deserve judgment for our sins. But this text also describes something else, doesn't it? Redemption. How do we attain redemption? The Lord is my salvation. It's by the person of Jesus Christ through his life, death, and resurrection and time, space, history, and flesh that we receive redemption. And it's God himself who brings it. And we can rejoice with these people. We can rejoice with Isaiah and say, yes, God is our salvation. He has accomplished it. And now all the sinfulness and all the unrighteousness that I've accumulated is washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And that it is through him and what he has accomplished. And if we place our faith in him, we achieve all that righteousness because he gives it to us. And that way God doesn't look at us and say, look at this beautiful creation. He looks and says, look at my children whom I love. Through Jesus, this is possible. And what else do we find? God is with the people. This is our future forever. It's already even here now. God is with us right now in our midst, within us if we believe. But there's going to come a time when all of those things that darken that image is gone. And we're able to see God face to face and we're able to say, the Holy One of Israel you have saved. I am excited for those days. I am thankful that Isaiah proclaimed this because it shows me Jesus Christ is the Savior. He is the one who came. He is the one who brings us this peace, the Holy One of Israel. And all of us should give thanks just as they did. Just as Isaiah was proclaiming about a future people, we are that people. We are the plural, we're the singular, and we rejoice today. So let us pray, knowing that we have every reason to give thanks. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your prophets. We thank you so much, especially what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. Because it is through Jesus that we are able to know you. You who bestow upon us your spirit, who walks with us, talks with us, who guides us along as we continue on this road of faith. And Lord, we rejoice because there is an end to the suffering. There is an end to the unrighteousness and the injustice. And it's found in knowing you. And so Lord, we ask that you would continue to reveal yourself to us in the scriptures. That you would continue to reveal yourself to us in our minds and our hearts. And all of who we are would turn toward you in the knowledge that you are good. That you save. And that in the end, it is from you we are blessed. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have accomplished. We thank you, Lord, for all that you accomplish right now. And we thank you, Lord, for what you will accomplish in our future. 
And we praise your mighty name for these things and give thanks. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.